0: This is Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries.
1: This is Jonathan Doolin, here once again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year chronological study Bible. The first question is, is why does God tell his people not to be afraid when they experience rivers of di- difficulty? And what does this promise say to us in our trials?
0: Jonathan, the Lord makes powerful claims. Those claims can drive away fear even in the midst of calamity. He tells us that because he tells us several truths in, this, in 43. He tells us that we are created and formed by him. And the fact that he forms us means that he knows exactly what we need in every situation. Second, he tells us that we're ransomed and called by him. This is to say that he's paid a price for us and called us by name. So he knows specifically what I'm going through, what you're going through, and not you, plural, but you, Jonathan, or anybody, you listening to this, God knows exactly what you're going through. Third, he promises in this text... He will go with us through the fires and the uh, the rivers and the fires of life. His presence in the river and in the fire makes all the difference. Fourth, he promises we'll make it through. He says you will not drown. You will not be burned up. And he makes these claims because he's the covenant God, Yahweh, who is our savior and we are precious to him. This is what he says. In every trial we face today, these truths still speak to God's people. And the real question we have to ask ourselves is, am I his?
1: Yeah, and you know, one of the things that is often difficult for us to swallow and realize is there's no promise that we won't face trials. There's almost the opposite the Amen. promise that we will face trials. But uh, we have a God who walks with us through them and has promises in those trials. Amen. <laughs> What challenge does the Lord make to those who claim to be equal to Him? And what evidences does the true God provide that He is God?
0: One of the things that's true in Scripture is that God never seeks to defend that He is God or that He exists. However, He does provide evidence. And evidence is different from proof in the sense that there are many things that I can't prove in this life, but there is evidence that they're true. God provides evidence... And basically, in Isaiah, in the form of predictive prophecy, he claims that he, from the call of Abraham to the establishment of the nation of Israel and of Judah, where we are now, that he's made promises that are rooted in history, followed through in time, and fulfilled in real time that demonstrate what no other idol or deity can do. And he challenges them to do the same. You prove your power by keeping your promises. He makes specific and strong claims about the future that have come to pass, and these are the evidences that we can show to a watching world to say, why do we trust in this God?
1: Hmm. Amen. How and why does God refine His people, and what can we learn from this refining process in our own lives?
0: These verses stuck out to me a long time ago when I read through Isaiah. He said, Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. God likens His refining process to the process of the silversmith. If you're familiar with what smiths do, they will heat up the metal. They receive a lump of, looks like silver. They heat it up in the fire. And they heat it up till it becomes liquid. And then the dross, those impurities that are lighter than the silver, will float to the surface and, and he will then take those, uh, a scoop, and he will scoop that, those impurities out so that eventually silver will be so pure that he can see his own face in the, in the silver. The Lord likens his refining process to the process of silver in that he uses the fire, the suffering of his people, to refine them and burn away the dross of sin. Now, the method may hurt, but it also heals because he says his goal is to purify his people so that his name won't be tarnished, his glory won't be shared with the idols. And that specifically means he's not going to give Babylon's idols the credit for the judgment that he has already prior imposed upon his people for their rebellion and apostasy.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good, and we know one day the Lord will purify all of creation and rid sin um, from the face of the earth, and we look forward to that day. Next, who is the Lord's servant who will bring his salvation to the ends of the earth, and how else does Isaiah describe that servant?
0: Well, as you know, the servant of the Lord is one of the great themes of the book of Isaiah. Sometimes the phrase refers to Israel, God's people. Sometimes it refers to Isaiah, the prophet, but sometimes it refers to another personage, one who will come. These phrases, where he's talking about here, the salvation of the ends of the earth, point to the one who will come. He will be commissioned to bring Israel back to the Lord. So he's not Israel because he's bringing Israel back. He's not the prophet because he's a future one who's coming. And he will also be a light to the Gentiles to bring the Lord's salvation to the ends of the earth. One day, Kings will stand at attention when this servant passes by, and princes will bow low. He's called the chosen of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 52 and 53, we get this elaborate and glorious description of this one who has no attractiveness, who is who is opens not his mouth, who suffers for sinners, who is willingly lays his back open and gives it for sinners. And we see these Terrifying, really, descriptions of the judgments that he will experience, but not for himself. That one day the suffering servant will suffer for us and all we who have gone astray. The Hebrew is really funny in that Isaiah passage. All we like sheep have gone astray. Us all is the same Hebrew phrase. All we and us all. So the Lord lays the iniquity of us all, all who've gone astray on the suffering servant. And he pays the price for sin. It's a beautiful picture.
1: Hmm. Amen. Amen. In Isaiah 57, 15, what promise does God make for the humble? And what does this verse teach us about God?
0: In a strange paradox, this verse begins by talking about how high and lofty God is, that he is the high and holy one, the lofty one who inhabits eternity that his throne is a glorious throne that's not bound by time or space or this world or even this universe. This universe can't contain his throne. And then he contrasts that in the next statement by saying he loves to dwell with the humble and the contrite. The word contrite pictures something that's been crushed and broken. What does he do to those? He restores their spirits. He revives their courage. God resists the proud. And in fact, as we'll see in, when we get to Habakkuk, he, he tells us that pride is the true opposite of faith. But those who bow low before him in faith and humble themselves to him, he loves. And this is the heart for which he ser- searches. And this is the life that gets to spend time in his presence. David, as we walk through the story of David, we see him learning this in Psalm 51. He uses these same phrases contrite, and humble, because he's been broken over his sin. And God honors that broken heart.
1: Amen. Amen. How does the spirit of the sovereign Lord prepare the servant for his work? And what does this tell you about your own need for his spirit?
0: Isaiah makes this glorious prophecy And Jesus begins His public ministry after His baptism and temptation by quoting these verses to define His calling. It's interesting that He stops in the middle between the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of judgment because He's coming to bring the first one, the acceptable year of the Lord. He'll bring the day of judgment later. But the anointing that He speaks of is the presence of the Holy Spirit that seals one for a calling and empowers for ministry. In the Old Testament, Elisha was anointed as a prophet. Aaron and his sons were anointed as priests. And David, among others, was anointed as king. The Spirit of the Lord is the anointing that he gives to his servant. And this anointing empowers Jesus, as as we know, to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and set prisoners free. True believers receive the Spirit at conversion, and his abiding presence guides us into truth, guards us from error, and gives us the power that we need to fulfill God's purposes for our lives.
1: Mm, Amen. Amen. Lastly, how might Manasseh's life have been influenced by the choices Hezekiah made in his old age, especially in Isaiah 39, and what does Manasseh's reign teach us about listening to the Lord?
0: Manasseh is such a byword for the evil time of Israel, of Judah especially, Manasseh began his reign and co-reigned with his father. According to most scholars, there was a co-regency period for about 11 years. Because if you remember, Hezekiah had been sick, thought he was going to die, and he, the prophet turned back the sundial and prayed for him to be healed, and he was healed. He was given 15 years. So as he knew his time was coming to a close, he brought his young son onto the throne with him, And allowed him to co-reign. But another thing happened. Hezekiah was lifted up with pride. God had done all these amazing things in his life. And when the envoys of Babylon came to, uh, to honor him, he showed them all the treasures of Israel. And Isaiah rebuked him for it. But instead of humbling himself as had been his practice, which is very strange, his pride caused him to say, well, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. And I think that attitude of caring only for himself and not for the future unintentionally taught Manasseh a set of spiritual values that said, the Lord's not very important because he certainly learned them. He learned that lesson way too well because when his father died, he abandoned all pretense of Yahweh worship. He led Judah down a dark path toward judgment. He was rebuked often, yet he didn't listen. Tradition says, and we don't have this in anywhere written except traditions, it says that he even took the prophet Isaiah, had him sewn into a bag, put into a hollow log, and sawn in two. And several traditions record that. And this is that from Hebrews 11, they were sawn in two. Um, a heart like that brought dishonor from the Lord personally, but it also hastened the national judgment that came upon Judah. And I think if we look at Manasseh's life, It's a sobering, chilling reminder that hard-heartedness toward God's Word can bring destruction we don't want to bring upon ourselves and our descendants.
1: Amen. Thank you, Dr. May.
0: Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One-Year Chronological Study Bible.